Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Today we're reading from Mark chapter 3, verses 6 to 35, and I'm reading from the ESV version. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him and they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of the demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Afternoon Church family and welcome to City Light Online Church. If you have your Bibles, please keep them open as we are going to continue exploring Mark's Gospel today. Uh, I hope and uh, hope and trust that isolation tra- life has been treating you well. Um, I'm really itching to see you in person. Speaking to a camera right now is kind of weird to be honest. Um, but I'm really keen to see you all in person once this whole COVID-19 thing is over. Um, if you aren't doing so well, uh, let me just plug City Care again. Please hit us up through City Care. Hit, a, uh, hit up one, an, an elder or an elder candidate. Um, hit up one of your DG leaders um, so we, that we may be able to care for you, we may be able to love you, we may be able to shepherd you in this time of crises. Um, so before we get into to today's text, um, what are we doing? Well, as I said before, we're going through Mark's Gospel in um, 
uh, Mark chapter 3 today. Um, but last week we had Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, but Jesus is more than just his death and resurrection. He had a life. He had 14 chapters before that in Mark, right? Um, and so today as we explore Mark, um, we're going to look at Jesus bringing together his family. Um, but before we get into that, where are we at with things? Um, if you know, Mark's gospel is a very hard-hitting gospel. The action is non-stop. Um, it, it, Mark starts with the, the telling of the coming of King Jesus at his baptism. And Mark does not mince his words here. As the reader here, you, there are no questions as to who Jesus is. Because at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And a voice booms from the heavens saying, You are my beloved Son. And with you I am well pleased. This is the Son of God. And the whole point of Mark is to convince us, yes, yes, you, the reader, is to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not some fancy, smancy teacher guru dude. He's not some just good bloke with some good ethics. He is the Son of God. And in the next few moments in Mark, uh, after, you, after the baptism, you see Jesus begin his ministry. In Mark 1, uh, 14 to 15, Jesus uh, goes out proclaiming the gospel of God, saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so from the very, very get-go, you see what Jesus is on about. But the thing is, as Jesus starts to teach, he starts to face opposition. And from, from all of all people, the religious elite, who should have known better. So to show you he's legit, he heals a man with an unclean spirit. And he does, he does a miracle. And this happens again and again and again. And by, so by the time you get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus had healed a lot of people already. But he had also said some pretty, quote-unquote, controversial things upsetting the religious status quo. And that results in him facing some nasty opposition. The opposition, the kind of opposition that's going to get him killed. But Jesus didn't just come to preach at people and heal the sick folk. He does more than that. And that, he brings, that brings us to our text tonight. You see, Jesus came to do the will of God, namely in this text today, to form his family. To form his people, to form his church. So, as we look at Mark today, let's pray and help, uh, ask God to help us see Jesus in all his splendor and all his glory. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, who you are. We thank you for your word. That, uh, through your word, that's how we get to know you. That's how we get to know Jesus. Uh, speak to us today. Open our eyes to the reality of you. Stir our affections to Jesus and make us more like him as we bask at his magnificent character. May we leave tonight changed. Um, may we not be just simply hearers of the word, but effectual doers of the word. Spirit, move in us tonight. We need you to move. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, Mark takes us on a bit of a journey in the text today and on how and how Jesus builds his family. Um, so I've kind of divided it into three sections. Um, namely, Jesus, the first section being Jesus' authority attracted people, which leads to Jesus establishing his people. And thirdly, Jesus then prioritizes his people. 
His authority attracts people, he establishes his people, and then he prioritizes his people. So, first point, to build his family, Mark shows us that Jesus' authority attracts people. Now, Jesus news about Jesus was getting out. Jesus was gaining popularity, and the religious elite was starting to conspire to kill him. And Jesus had to get out of there. But then a crowd followed him. And they didn't just follow him, it grew. People were coming from all over the place, north, south, east, west. The crowd heard all that he was doing, as the system was saying. They heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. Now, we can speculate as to why they came to him. Maybe they wanted to marvel at the spectacle. Maybe they wanted to come for a miracle. The intentions aren't awfully clear here. But no matter the reasons behind people coming to see Jesus, it was Jesus' authority that was drawing people towards him from everywhere. And what's more, Jesus continued to walk in his godness, to walk in his divinity, and he continued to heal people. He doesn't let authority get to his head. He doesn't become cynical at the potential reasons why people might be coming to him. But instead, he uses his power, he uses his authority to heal desperate people in desperate times with real issues. Why? It's because he cares. It's because in his power and authority, Jesus cares. He doesn't wait for them to take an knee and pledge themselves to his teachings. No, no. Jesus, in his authority, makes the first move. And he shows them kindness and compassion. And he heals them. And Jesus doesn't just heal one paralytic man or one random dude with a withered hand. The text says he, he healed many people. In fact, Jesus heals so many people that the disciples get, get a boat ready in case they overwhelm him. Imagine, imagine you were on a crowded train and everyone is smooshed up against you and, and these diseased people are trying to touch you. There was no concept of social distancing here. And yet Jesus doesn't tell them to back off. He heals them instead. From this little reading, I think that's, this sets up the tone of the rest of our reading. Jesus, with his authority over life and sickness... He brings in all types of people from all these different places. And when you're reading this, you might get the feeling that maybe, just, just maybe, this Jesus dude, this Jesus character, is not just meant for this one particular set of people in this one particular place, in this particular set of time. Interestingly, Mark tells us that the demons were commanded not to tell people about Jesus. I'm like, Jesus revealed by his actions that he was the son of God. But we get told, ironically, by Mark that the unclean spirits were the ones who recognized Jesus for who he truly was. Now, we don't know who in the crowd saw Jesus for who he was, but I that poses a good question to us. Do we see Jesus for who he truly was and what he truly was on about? Because as I said before, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Jesus is the Son of God, and he was about the proclamation of the kingdom at hand. Is this the Jesus we chiefly and primarily see? Or do we 
see Jesus chiefly and primarily as something else? This is an important question to ask because, we, because knowing who Jesus is and what he's on about is the basis for the family he's building. What's a bit puzzling, though, is that Jesus, yes, Jesus did forbid the, the enemy to tell people about him. But if Jesus is about the proclamation of the kingdom, why is he slowing down the spread? Like, it's not like it's a contagion that needs to be restrained, right? Why does, the Jesus, why does Jesus forbid the demons to reveal the truth about him? And the answer to that question comes up in the next episode after this little event here, which leads me to my second point. Jesus, with his authority, establishes his people. After the crowd pretty much mobs him, Jesus goes up a mountain. And who comes up with him? Did the crowds go up with him? No. Verse 13 says, Jesus called to those whom he desired. He called to those whom he wanted. Why? Well, verses 14 and 15 say this. He appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they, may, they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus doesn't randomly pick 12 people, but he appoints 12 disciples. It's a very intentional decision. And the reason being, so that they would be disciples, they would be the foundation of the church to reach out uh, the people of God. Some scholars here think that the 12 here represent almost like a parallel to the 12 tribes of Israel, of God's people. And so Jesus, in building his church, chooses these, these 12 to lead his people when he's no longer physically with them. That's why Jesus forbade the, the unclean spirits to talk about him in verse 12. It wasn't just a timing thing. Jesus wanted to use the right messengers to do the will of the Father, that is, to proclaim the kingdom of God had come. Now I want us to know, Jesus first and foremost wanted his disciples not to be out preaching or casting out demons. But first and foremost, Jesus wanted the disciples to be with him. And this is an important detail because it is only by being with him that they knew how to walk like him, how to talk like him, how to be like him. It's kind of like picking up mannerisms from someone that you've been hanging out a lot with, right? Jesus wanted his disciples, his, the leaders of his church, to firstly be with him before anything else. So that when they were with him, they would grow in their Christ-likeness. And only then would they be able to preach and cast out demons. And that's the same with us. Before we can do anything for Christ... Before we do anything for Jesus at all, we need to be with Christ. We need to spend time getting to know Him. We need to read the Word. We need to pray to Him. We need to commune with Him. We need to grow in our knowledge of Him so that we may become like Him and that our affections may grow for Him. Now, Jesus was also very deliberate in who He chose. He didn't choose the top of the class Jewish leaders, He didn't choose the best of the best, the creme de la creme. He didn't choose the same kinds of people either. It appears here that he chose a group of rag-tag misfits. Think about it. You had three fishermen. You had a religious zealot who despised the Romans. 
you had a tax collector who worked for the Romans, you have a serial doubter, you have a thief, and then just a couple of average Jews you don't hear much else about in the Gospels. As much as I like to liken the apostles to the Avengers, where Jesus is like, there was an idea to bring together this group of remarkable people. In actuality, it was nothing like that at all. Can you imagine the friction in that group? Especially between Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot? Do you, th- you think politics in churches is divisive now? thing is, Jesus called all of these people to be with him, to learn him, from him, to be his disciples together. Not separately, together. And this is important because Mark has given us this example of communing with Jesus to show that both faith to show faith is both individual and communal. That's why Mark outlines all the apostles in verse 16 to 19. He shows us that Jesus knows them by name. He knows them individually. But he's called them together, corporately. Yes, faith, your relationship with Jesus, absolutely is personal. There is definitely a personal aspect to it. But we must push back against our individualistic Western mindset that makes us want to limit our faith to being just me and Jesus, my buddy of mine. We are to live in communion with Christ. We are to live in communal unity with Christ. And we must do that so even with people we might not get along with well. You see, the faith in, faith in the New Testament is to be lived out as a community. And this togetherness, this family vibe thing, this idea of Jesus' church being a family, doesn't stop there. It continues on the rest, in, in, in the rest of this reading as well. Which brings me to my third point. That Jesus prioritizes his family. Funnily enough, after introducing us to the 12 apostles, Mark contrasts Jesus' home life to his family life. In verse 20 it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. I don't know about you, but I imagine coming home from a long day of work, and my stomach is hungry, and all I want is Mama Trans cooking, you know what I'm saying? And But at the door, you have a crowd building up outside saying, Fix me! This happens to Jesus. But instead of Mama Mary's cooking, he's out there with the crowd. Jesus is obviously a better person, a better person than me, right? But we know that Jesus, but we know from the Gospels that Jesus doesn't neglect his own physical family. But you see, what you see here is that Jesus prioritizes his spiritual family. Mark gives us this example to show us that spiritual relationships are this kind of important. The kind of important that's more important than physical blood family. However, as Jesus prioritizes his presence amongst his people, there's a problem. The scribes don't like this one bit. In verse 22, it says this, The scribes came down from Jerusalem saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Now if you read verses 23 to 28, it's quite evident from the text that Jesus presented a parable that 
to, to show logically that he wasn't the devil and he wasn't under the influence of demons. In fact, Jesus says that in the, in the parable that he overcomes demons by restraining their power and setting those spiritually oppressed free. Now, I could spend some time here talking about Jesus being supreme over everything and life and death and spiritual darkness and demonic oppression. But I think what I really want us to notice is in verses 28 and 30. It says this. This is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies that the blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Clearly, Mark wants us to see the authority that Jesus has on full display as he cares for people by the power of the Holy Spirit. But despite this, ironically, the scribes, who were meant to be the leaders of God's people, they were so hard-hearted towards Jesus that they would rather willfully and decisively deny who Jesus was and blaspheme him than face the evidence and acknowledge that Jesus was God in the flesh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as he cared and, and cared and loved for his creation. The scribes' contempt towards the fact that people were being healed and cared for led to contempt towards the very nature of Jesus. Mark has made it pretty clear that Jesus prioritised his people. That's simply who he was. And following this interaction with the scribes, Mark makes it very clear that Jesus' disciples are to love and prioritise people just like Jesus did, especially if these people were in his church. And you find this in verses 31 to 35. It says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Finally, Jesus' physical family comes up again, trying to find out, find him, and probably sees him just like they did earlier. And think about this: this, crazy, this scene is crazy when you think about it. Jesus' physical family is outside calling for him, and the crowd inside, sitting with Jesus, telling that his family is calling. And the surprise here is that Jesus makes it explicitly clear that while yes, physical family is important, blood family is important. Jesus' family, the family of God, is of greater importance. And this has huge implications for us as the people of God today. Whether or not we're in a pandemic, God's church is to have so much importance in our lives, our spiritual relationships are meant to have so much importance, that they're more important than our earthly family. And Jesus' church in our day, isn't simply the institution of the church. It's no, it's no less than that, obviously. But the church is his family. It's his people. And as much as Jesus calls all of us who are his disciples as his family, what Jesus is also saying is that he's calling us to see each other as family, as brothers and sisters. 
That's pretty intimate. That's a hard ask. Not because it just feels a little bit unnatural, it jars against the senses a little bit, but it means that I can't be a part of a church community just for myself. And I'm well aware that in our church we have very different people, and some of us struggle to form strong connections. And this is understandably so. But if the church of Jesus Christ was able to give up their positions and give, up to, give it to those who needed it, like we found out in Acts 2, how do we do this family thing that Jesus wants for us? Well, you find that out in verse 33 when answering, Who are my mother and brothers? Jesus looked around at the people sitting around him. Think about it. These people all came to see Jesus first. Not each other. But it is by coming to Jesus first. It has been by reconciling to him first. It is by being with him first. That is how we are able to call each other mother and sister and brother. That's how we are able to call each other family. The beauty of the gospel is that it draws in people from all over the place. And as much as we're reconciled to God first... God also reconciles people from all walks of life together. Jesus is commanding us to interact with each other, not as if we are family, but because we are family. And our family is united together by the blood of our humanity, by the blood of Jesus. So what does that mean for us as a church as City Light North Adelaide, especially in this time of social distancing? Well, we know that we are part of Jesus' family, not for our sake, but for his and for others. Jesus called us and he loved us first. Jesus pulled us into his family. And much like our physical family, we don't get to choose our church family members. But, because, but we love because he loved us first. There's no greater evidence than that than that of the cross on Calvary. We've received an eternal love from the Father through Jesus. And by participating in the family of God, we will receive Jesus' love through you. And likewise, Lord willing, you will also receive Christ's familial love in kind from your brothers and sisters. Again, Jesus' family is not for our sake, but it is for his sake and for others. Secondly, it's going to cost us our comfort. Our Western, as I said before, our Western consumeristic, individualistic mindset makes us want to believe that our faith is just about me. We're tempted to make our framework of faith just about me and Jesus. When it's quite opposite is the case. Christ calls us to take up our cross and die to ourselves and to follow him. Does that mean I can't have any wants or desires? It feels like I'll just get pushed around or I'll just, I'm just going to open up myself up to being a doormat. Well, if you're thinking that, I, I, I'm going to admit, I did think that as well when I was younger in my faith. But as we all sit at the feet of Jesus together and we become more like him, we can't help that as we are transformed by his love that we will grow to want to give up our preferences for the joy and benefit of others 
And this means giving up our worldly comfort. And that, and that, that may mean taking initiative to be a brother or sister to someone on the fringes of our community. It may mean embracing social awkwardness that may be even more pronounced with social distancing. And like the apostles, there will be friction. When our, but when our ultimate comfort is the presence of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that our forever acceptance is that we are forever accepted by our Father, we are able to willingly give up. We are able to freely volunteer our comfort for others. And that means giving up our time, our money, our energy. So we really need to ask ourselves, what can I do to be an active family member? Not ask what the church can do for me, but what can I do for my family? Don't expect the church to be a perfect family to join because there's no such thing. Family needs to be cultivated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. And thirdly, don't underestimate your contribution to the body. I'm like, we all have a role to play. You don't unnecessarily, you don't necessarily need to be on a ministry team to contribute to the, to, to the life of the church. But being actively involved in the lives of other members is extremely valuable, even if you don't think so. I'm not saying that, like, I'm not saying that you don't, shouldn't serve on a team or anything like that, but you should serve already by be, being an active participant in the life of the church's people. And Jesus called us to do life together, to grow together, to do mission together. And as we mature, as we live our daily lives, we disciple each other like iron sharpening iron. Don't underestimate what confessing your sin does with others. Don't underestimate, underestimate um, spurring each other onto good works. We need to adopt a posture of wanting to outdo each other in love and good deeds. Not so that we can boast about it, but because we can lift each other up. And if you are feeling new to this church family, and if you don't feel like you know many people, or if you're new to your Christian faith, or you feel like you're struggling with your faith, I want to encourage you, I would plead with you, don't disconnect because it's the easier thing to do. If you're called by Christ, you have a role to play. That's why you're still here. Don't, you don't know what you could be denying yourself or others. And I want to encourage you here, there's great freedom in obedience to God's word here. The Christian life was not designed to be done alone. In fact, it cannot be done in isolation. So in this season of social isolation, God is not calling us to relational isolation. If you're thinking, man, I don't, I don't know what to do, or I don't know what to give, even the, even the littlest thing, a phone call, a message, playing video games online, watching a movie virtually together, enjoying God's creation together, sending a packet of pasta or a toilet roll, or sending an edifying meme. 
Or do I dare say, even praying and reading the Bible together? Maybe this week, find someone and ask, how can, how can I pray for you this week? And actually pray for them over the phone. Just a thought. Don't underestimate the contribution, your contribution to the body. You see, Jesus came to earth and has invited us into his family. And he's made it possible that we can even be a part of it. And through his life, he did this through his life, death, and resurrection. Our Heavenly Father has adopted us into his family because of Jesus. So as we continue to live our lives and sit at his feet, may his transformative love change us to be more like him so that we would do his will, namely to love his family as he has loved us and to proclaim the gospel of God. I'm going to leave you with the words of Jesus in John 13, 35, uh, 13, 34 to 35. It says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another even as I have loved you, that you also will love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. Even though it is uh, difficult sometimes, even though uh, we struggle with people sometimes, help us to love each other like you have loved us. Help us to sit at your feet first before we do anything. It's, we, are only able to, we are only able to do life together because of the love you have shown to us on that cross. I pray that, that you impress that reality on our hearts tonight and for the rest of our lives. Help us to love you. Help us to love people. Help us to love your church. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.